As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Shift. This week's guest is Hala Alian. She's absolutely amazing. She's a clinical psychologist and writer based in New York City. So I was super excited to get her onto the podcast this week. She talked a lot about dealing with trauma in relationships and dating, um, how to stop yourself being codependent, how to implement boundaries and how to deal with other people implementing boundaries. It was really interesting. And she gave some advice about being in a relationship in the pandemic. So um, I hope you enjoy the podcast uh, episode and I'll talk to you at the end. I'm so excited for you to be on the podcast. And so, you know, basically it's like an anti-shame dating relationship. So it's so nice. Like usually we just have the chats and like have, it's usually comedians and stuff, but we've had experts on before as well, just not in a while. So this is really great. I've never had a clinical, I don't even know what a clinical psychologist is. So do you mind for sure. the audiences that don't, will you explain that? Of course. So a clinical psychologist is in the state. So it might be different from place to place, right? So in the States, there are a bunch of different degrees that make you able to do therapy legally. So you can be a social worker, you can be a licensed mental health counselor, and you can be a a clinical psychologist. And a clinical psychologist just means that I did a doctoral degree in clinical psych, which means that I studied how to do therapy with people, essentially. Um, And then like kind of specialized in different things. So I personally am specialized in like substance abuse and trauma. And I do a lot of work with cross-cultural issues. So I work a lot with like refugee populations and immigrant populations, third culture kids, things like that. Um, So it's basically just someone who does therapy. And are you originally an immigrant? I, you know, it's funny. I, so we were, I was born in the States, but my parents were living in the Middle East at the time. They, they, my mom visited her brother, gave birth to me (laughs) and I got the passport and then we went back to Kuwait. So in a way, both like, in, I have the extreme privilege of having like been born into the passport. I mean, that's becoming more and more of a dubious honor these days from the States, but like, I have like, you know, I got the American passport and then, but then we were living in Kuwait. So we went right back to Kuwait, like a couple of weeks after I was born, I lived there for the first four years of my life. And then Saddam invaded and my parents sought asylum in the States. So I'm, I'm a weird in between, like technically yeah. we did to the states but i had already kind of just gotten that passport uh, i love your mother though that's a badass that, right 
Isn't that badass? I actually know a couple of my Irish friends who their parents were just here for like a year, had their kids here and came back and they have the, and I'm like, God, why didn't my dad do that? He's so selfish. I know. She, I mean, she literally was like eight months pregnant. She's amazing. Like eight and a half months pregnant. Yeah. She was like ready to pop. <laughs> okay. And so when, how old were you when you came back? So we came, I was four when the invasion happened. I had just turned four. So we, we, they sought asylum in the States. We lived in Oklahoma and Texas, and then we lived in Maine for a year. They chose like the most random places. And then when I was 13, moved back to the Middle East. Okay. Uh, lived in like the United Arab Emirates, lived in Lebanon and Tripoli. Um, and then I did my undergrad at the American University of Beirut. So oh, I lived wow. in Beirut for a while. Yeah. And then I came here for grad school. Okay, we've actually had a Lebanese uh, girl on this podcast twice before, Natalie Aucar. She's a Lebanese. She Canadian. performed at the thing at the uh, in my backyard. She's right? one of the people who also said that you were beautiful. <laughs> oh, I found her very beautiful too. Yeah, this is, I love this like telephone communication. I know through you <laughs> anytime someone compliments somebody to me I always want to tell the person because I'm, I'm the same I'm the yeah same. because life is hard why not bring joy to people exactly I'm no, here. so go like let's say when you guys emigrated when you were four is that what made you decide to go into this line of work so I did I actually did my undergrad in political science okay uh, and I was planning on doing international law and then when the time came to study for the LSAT, I was like, JK, fuck this. And I was like, let's, how about we just do something different? And I had only taken a couple of psych classes, but I had always been really drawn to it. And I like the idea of going more micro and just sort of like working with individuals, working one-on-one. Um, so I definitely think like, it, it felt like an impulsive decision at the time, but then, you know, when you like look back 2020 and you're like, oh, every decision that happened and every experience that mm-hmm. I had obviously led to me being someone that was going to be a writer, being someone that was going to be a clinical psychologist, being someone that was going to like work with narrative and story. Like, of course, like I'm, yeah. I have all these different dislocated identities and I'm really interested in that. And I'm really interested in the ways that we like fragment ourselves. And then we have to like figure out how to put ourselves back together again. Um, so yeah, I, I'm certain it's connected. And this might be a dumb question, but what qualifies as trauma? You know, it's actually an excellent question because it, I think for a really long time, what qualified as trauma was something that had to meet certain diagnostic criteria, particularly in the DSM, like DSM-3, DSM-4. And, and the way I think of trauma is you have to have coded it as trauma. I know people that have survived sexual violence and, yeah. and honestly didn't, never had a trauma response to it. Yeah. They were like, you know, they had, they were like, these were difficult experiences. That wasn't great. Got to figure out a way to cope with it. But like they, they didn't end up developing PTSD, did not. I know a lot of people that have experienced a lot of things that we kind of think of and label as traumatic, traditionally yeah. speaking, that don't label them as traumatic for themselves. So I actually think it's really, it's really important in our, in my field to not like over pathologize or under pathologize, meaning like not to like label something for someone as traumatic because not everybody will have experienced it that way. And honestly, I've seen people have experiences that, that are like relational, that feel like they don't fit into the big T trauma category, but they've had really strong trauma reactions to them. And so for me, that's like, for me, trauma is whatever you coded in your system and your ecosystem is traumatic. Yeah. No, I think that's great. I think that's because even I've had a situation where someone said to me like, oh, that was sexual assault. And I was like, ah, I didn't feel like that. 
I felt, you know, and I, and I, I never had a bad, you know, I was like, maybe I shouldn't drink as much. And that was the only thing. And, and, you know, and I then had a healthier relationship with alcohol, but yeah, I know other friends with a similar experience and they like were like very traumatized. So totally. I had this, I used to, I drank for, I mean, I quit drinking like nine, nine, ten a while ago because I drank so much and I was, I had similar things. Like there were a lot of things that happened in those years when I drank a lot that I feel like could really have easily been coded as big T trauma, but I just didn't, I don't know. My system didn't like label them as such. Yeah. And so yeah. afterwards I would do therapy or I would talk to friends or I would whatever. And people like you're saying would sort of put that label on it or be like, remember, how are you? Do- how are-? And I'm like, I think I'm okay. I think. Like, I don't know. Like, you're like, is it bad that I'm okay? <laughs> yeah. And then you're like, I now is something wrong with me. Is this a trauma response? Like, it's like, yeah, there's a, there's a way in which we can like, yeah, it's like, I'm, I'm a big fan of like, don't borrow trouble. And how do you feel? So like, specifically, I know a lot of people who listen to the podcast have talked about people or have messaged in about people bringing in like past stuff into relationships. So I guess if you're like dating someone and how to deal with their trauma, um, yeah. is there any like advice you'd give for people for the, in those situations? I mean, I think it's really important. There, there's a concept in a, like in like AA, NA code, like all these different, you know, group, anonymous groups where this idea of like your side of the street, which I really mm-hmm. love. And I think about it a lot, which is like, we're all responsible for keeping our side of the street clean. And that doesn't mean that we can't cross over and help someone pick up litter on their side if we have the extra emotional reserves for it or the wherewithal or the interest or that, you know what I mean? Like the, like if we have the capacity to do it, but what you don't want to happen to go with this metaphor is to be like, both of you are on their side of the street trying to take care of that. And then your side is piling up. Yeah. Like you are first and foremost responsible for your well-being and in as much as you have control over it right like as much as any of us have control over anything if you're first and foremost like doing things in the service of yourself and answering to yourself and and then whatever extra you have absolutely go help the other person side of the street but i think like the way that i would the way that i would answer that question is to say i think it's really important to think about what it is that the other person can do for themselves what it is that you can do for yourself and what it is that you need to do for yourself. And then like kind of figure out those public like puzzle pieces and rearrange them. Because I think there's a, there, especially if people have a, a like, um, like I can be, I can be codependent in relationships. And I think a yeah. lot of people can't be. And I think if you have that like inclination to like lean into that, you will very rapidly be like neglecting yourself and very yeah. rapidly be, be like, I'm going to go into caretaking mode. I'm going to go into fixing mode. I'm going to, and, and the problem with doing that is it doesn't help anyone. Like it doesn't actually help the other person. It might help in the short term, kind of like bandaid on a bullet wound sort of thing, but it doesn't really help in any sort of long-term way for them to learn how to like metabolize their discomfort or their suffering or learn new coping or make new life choices. Um, and then it certainly doesn't help you take care of yourself. Yeah, I think that's I think that's great advice because I'm sure anyone listening is going to relate to that a lot where, because a lot like, especially hospitable people or like nurturing people and then you get really into that role playing and then you forget about yourself and then if when you come out of that you're like so angry and like it's hard then getting into a next relationship to establish boundaries yes one of the things I mean, there's an expression that I really love which is that codependency breeds resentment and the first time I heard that I was like why, why? I don't understand but it's but it's 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 exactly what you said if you follow like play the tape until the end play that cycle until the end and by the end of it, you're like, 
I've given this, I've given that, I've given, and, and a lot of times the person on the other end of it's like, I didn't even ask for those things. <laughs> you just made me your project. Yeah. I didn't want any of that, you know? And so I think there's a way in which like being mindful of those, like over caretaking and like mm. under attending to the self, like being mindful of that can help you not end up like furious. Yeah. And do you think it's important then if you start to date, date someone new to be like this is what I've gone through before and like a heads up or do you think it's better just to not talk to the person about that either and not like burden them with it I think it depends on how early and I think it depends also on the dynamic between the two people I do think it's a good idea like I think that it's an there's something kind about giving a person a heads up of like, yeah. these are some of the current things I'm working on. I don't think that necessarily means by date one or two, you need to be like, and then my daddy did this and then that happened. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I think unless you're really having that sort of conversation, go for it. But, but it, I don't think there's like a moral obligation to do anything. You don't have to share anything you're not comfortable sharing. But I think there is sort of a, like a loveliness and an intimacy as the courtship progresses and being like, you know, these are the things that I struggle with. And these are the things that are kind of ongoing struggles. Um, if for nothing else, I think when people are entering relationships, they tend to put on their best fate. Like there's a lot of like curating, yeah. which is so unfortunate because like, okay. that's not how you're going to be able to appeal to the people that you're going to, like, you should be appealing to. You know what I mean? Like if I, if I attract someone to my curated persona, they, at some point that curated persona is going to drop. You know what I mean? Like, it's not fun for anybody. So I think there's there's just an unfortunate kind of, like, I don't know, there's a whole, like, culture around, I think, dating and courting that can be, that can just be to the detriment of everybody. I think that's really true as well, because I've even noticed, like, um, I'd be very much myself straight away. Uh, and it's just because I have a, I'm just who I am, okay? And I find mm. that that, I'm lucky. I feel very happy to be like that. But I have had guys be like, you know, bring in past stuff so let's say if they're like can I go out with my friends tonight and not see you tonight and I'm like yeah that's fine and then they're like are you sure is this a trap is this a trick are you gonna get mad is this and I'm like I just said it was fine and then all of a sudden it's like they're they've already pictured an argument that we're not having and I'm like I don't I'm not this isn't but it's just they're rejecting from past relationships because they're arguing I was just gonna say because they're arguing with somebody from a year ago yes having an argument that's like three years old you just weren't part of that initial <laughs> argument. You know what I mean? Because that's what it is. I mean, we're, I, I think we are doomed as a bit dramatic. I think we are fated to repeat our cycles until we do something different. I know. And we're going to just keep doing that. And you know, I think, until you really do. Yeah. Oh, oh no, no. But I, I just think as well, people can't help but put you in boxes, you know? So they do it all the time. Like, you know, you're white, you're Arab, you're Irish, you're Catholic, you're a woman. And I think, um, so dating, sometimes women can be like, but all men, I, you know, I've dated a couple of cheaters, all men cheat. And then, or everyone like, does it. Yeah. Totally. It's not, it's not like a one thing, like everyone you, you see it in like queer relationships, you see it in poly relationships, you see it in monogamous, monogamous relationships and straight. Like, I think it's just, we go into the world and our we have these stupid brains that really want to categorize things. Like if you look at it just from like the like lizard brain thing, we developed this skill because at some point it told us which berries were okay to eat and which berries would kill us. So your mind is like safe, not safe, good, not good, happy, not happy, right? And I think that's what we do. We go through the world, somebody hurts me and they're wearing a yellow shirt. And I'm like, yellow shirted people, they're there. You watch out for those yellow shirted people. Like it's a joke, but it's actually kind of, you know, there is like a, there is a, there's truth to it. You know, it's like, like I, I did a straight man and that man hurts me. And then it's like, 
fuck men, all men. They're always yeah. going to be doing this. They're always going to whatever. You're in a relationship and you, you know, you end up, um, like, I, I think this has happened a lot where people will, like, like, develop these theories about types of, like, types of women, types of people, types of partners. It's like, oh, like, they're that type of person. They're that type of, like, this is going to be yeah. that type of relationship. And I think the problem is that we, I don't think we give ourselves enough of an opportunity to be surprised. Yeah, no, it's hard. Like, cause even like, I can only go from my specific experiences, but the guy that I'm seeing now, it definitely has PTSD from the last relationship uh, mm. because it's brought it up a lot. And I keep having to be like, that's not me. Just see how things go with me. Um, and it's, it's, it's hard to ha- be like, okay, you need to just drop your experiences and kind of take, take issue with whatever I do in the future. But I, you know, it's, it happen. I mean, I think it also happens like this is something that happens in my, I mean, I'm, I've, I've been married to someone for six years. Oh, we've been together for like eight years. We're about to be together for eight years. And, and that's one of the things that we've started talking about more is this idea of like, like I, I came at some point, I was like, we have to think about this concept of beginner's mind, like that yeah. we use in meditation for people that meditate. It's like this idea that every meditation you sit down you're, you're trying not to bring in your old experience, like yesterday's meditation. You're not bringing yesterday's meditation in. So yesterday, maybe you had a great one. Today, you're sitting down and you're going, let's see what today's meditation is like. Beginner's mind. Each time you're a beginner, every single time, even if you've been meditating for a decade, right? And I think there's some value in taking that concept and applying it to relationship stuff. Um, and it's one of the things my partner and I've talked about is sort of like how to have beginner's mind with each other because also being together for eight years is a long ass time. Yeah. And there are a lot of stories that we both have developed about each other. There's a lot of ways in which we've been there for each other, supported each other and failed each other. You know what I mean? Like they're like, that's just what happens with two people in whatever context. And so I think there is a, there is a way in which now we're trying to kind of infuse the relationship a little bit more with this idea of like, bring in beginner's mind. So like, if you, so in your case, you're talking about like, treat me as me, not as your ex, right? So, but when you're in a longer relationship, what you're saying is like, treat me as me today, not me four years ago. Yeah. Because I'm trying to do things differently or they're trying to do things. You know what I'm saying? That's so it's, so, so it's also, like a, it's a bit of a mind thought. Yeah. Because you're just like, I know that maybe the last thousand times that you've asked X, Y, or Z, I've done this, but like this thousandth and first time, what am I actually doing right now? Pay attention to the thing I'm actually doing. And I'm going to pay attention to the thing you're actually doing. And that's the only way you get, you, you can change your you can start to change that categorizing thing that your brain does. I love that because that's so true because me five years ago is a different person, a completely. So, and I think that's, I think that's exciting. I think people are afraid of getting into long-term relationships because of the sameness. But I think if you go in it with like the people are going to grow or like willing to try different things sexually as you go on, like if, oh, that could be, I think the idea of relationship is really exciting because I'm like, oh, you know, as I get more comfortable with someone, I'm like, I might have sex with him in a bathroom and I wouldn't do that with a guy I just met. You know what I mean? So I'm like, all those things of like (laughs) the things you can do together. But I think my generation now, it's like, oh, but if I stick with one person, I'm missing out on the new or whatever instead of it's yes, Yes. And there is, I mean, that's like, that's the whole like, I mean, that's sort of like the, the age old, like what's the Chris Rock bit of like, single and bored or, or single and lonely or married and bored where it's like that's sort of the age-old like trope and I do think there's some truth to it I mean look if you're in a long-term monogamous relationship I just start shitting on my marriage Ooh, let me tell you no, I'm just kidding. like if you're in a long-term monogamous relationship 
yes, there is a certain amount of newness that you are, at least in terms of like being with other people, falling in love with people, having first date, things like that, that I definitely miss. I'm sure he misses too. Like I, that, I, that's, I think a thing that I, I, I very strongly believe in like, like name the things that you mourn or name the things yeah. that are, uh, you know, the chapters that are behind you or currently behind you or whatever. Like, I think it's important to be able to put language to that because we have such a denial culture of like, no, no, everything's okay. Everything's fine. I love, you know, and it's like, no, it's okay. It's okay. When you make any choice in life, you are by default not making the other choices. Yeah. That's what happens. If you decide to enter a monogamous relationship with someone, you are saying, I'm not going to enter a monogamous relationship with every other human in the world. Yeah. And that's, that's a lot of doors that get closed, you know, and it's okay to have feelings about that. Um, and I think you'll move through those feelings quicker if you're honest about it. But I do think for all the ways that you won't get that newness in, in some long-term relationships, I do think there's a newness, like you're saying, we regenerate. Yeah. People become different versions of themselves all the time. And there's a newness you can discover in the other person and in yourself. Like I'm, I'm a, like, like you said, completely different human than I was five years ago. Everything that I like, there's so, and in some ways for the better and in some ways, honestly, for the worse, but like, they're like, it's, I'm just not the same person. Um, And I think that there is a, there is like sort of like these multitudes that we contain, like both parties contain. And obviously in, in open relate, like it's, everyone has like different configurations, but speaking to that model. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. I love that. I love this. This is, this is, oh, so great. Now I'm like, I should go to a clinical psychologist every day. (laughs) Um, Oh, yes, I did want to ask you because I did see online that you wrote, you know, that you uh, teach coping mechanisms through like art, writing and uh, uh, music, right? So, well, firstly, do you think there's like a role of humor in coping mechanisms? Just because, you know, I just absolutely. Yes, a thousand percent. I think I mean, I think that like I know a I know a fair amount of, I guess, comedians because of my closeness with the fear, because there's like a few people in my life that are comedians. Like I, I think that comedians are, they get a bad rap for being like really fucked up and they don't work on their stuff and they're just like, go on stage. And then, but I, but I like, and they vomit their issues, but I don't, I actually find that comedians a lot of the times have a, have a, have something that a lot of people, that the lay people don't have which is that they have language for their experiences. And that is the first step in coping. You know what I mean? Like the ability to be able to tell a joke about something means that you have sat down and metabolized and digested that experience enough to be able to then put language and words onto it. Yeah. And that by itself means that you've done some reflection. You've done some processing. Oh yeah, absolutely. I would honestly feel like it, like, you know, people joke and they're like, oh, they treat it like therapy, but I would, I think it's very therapeutic. I think it's very therapeutic. To, to be able to say what's wrong with you, but also use humor to kind of do it comfortably. And also be witness. I mean, again, we're thinking of it as like, like, what is a church? What is an audience? What is like sitting in, in sort of congregation or community with people? Like at the end of the day, people get up on stage, whether they're reading a poem or they're giving a sermon or they're telling a joke, like you, why are you choosing to do that in front of people? You know, you yeah. can write a joke and just like type it up. And so like there, there is, there is some transmission of, of energy and witnessing that's happening between the speaker and the people that are in the audience. And I think that's really healing too, like to sit and to share things and to hear people respond to it, whether through yeah. applause or laughter or nodding or whatever, like there is some way in which you're like connected. Yeah, I agree with you. I even find like, so I have 
two best friends who live in Sydney. They're from Ireland, but we voicemail and they live in different parts of Sydney and we voicemail each other every day. And sometimes we'll text afterwards saying, you don't even need to listen to this. I just needed to hear myself out loud. And it's so like, it's like once you hear, like once you let the words out of your brain, it's like, oh, that issue is not as bad or I understand it more. It's so hard to be afraid of things that aren't in the dark, yeah. that aren't like tucked away. You know what I mean? Like the first, like there's the, there's all this like beautiful research on like shame. I think Brene Brown talks about this a lot, like about how the, the antidote to shame is to bring it into the light and to speak it. It's yeah. to say the thing you're ashamed of, to say the thing you're afraid of, to say the thing you're overwhelmed by. And that by itself, I mean, that, that is like such a big part in vanquishing it or in integrating it. That's great. I'm glad you brought up shame because most, a lot of the listenership are, are Irish and a big thing in our culture is shame. Like feeling shame, and you know, and I guess that would be a lot to do with Arabs are like that too. But you know, it's it's actually so funny because I feel like I really relate um to a lot of my Arab friends here, and it is that similar kind of religion, especially on women. Like I didn't know about masturbation until I moved over. Like I knew about it, but I didn't know it was okay. And like you didn't know it existed. Like I knew men did it, but I didn't know women. Did oh, it. I see what you mean. I see what you mean. I thought it was like this dirty thing. And then naughty thing you don't do or don't talk about. Yeah. And once I talked about it openly over here, um, especially with the podcast, then my Irish friends are like, oh, yeah, we do it. We just don't talk about it. And I was mm. like, wow. And it's like over here, my friends are much more open and comfortable with yes. it. And I was feeling so much shame with sex, but it was because I wasn't enjoying it. So it was like an anticlimax and it just reaffirmed yes. like, oh, it's this dirty thing. But then when I realized oh I'm like a click girl <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> to enjoy it and I didn't feel the shame and it made me like really question about shame and and yeah totally. shame is such a like shame around sexuality shame around pleasure like I think this happens a lot with women like the idea of female pleasure the idea of wanting something and having desire and going after it is so huge because to be it's there's something about like the, the act of wanting that feels like naughty. Like you're not yeah. supposed to want. There's something greedy about that. You're, you know, like there's like, like no, 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 no. But, but get that, get, like contain that. And I think in the Arab, you know, I mean, this is painting with broad strokes. So I'll speak generally speaking. Sometimes the thing you'll see in like Arab culture or certain Arab families is like, there's also this idea of honor. And so the the like the the daughter, the sister, the mother, like the there, there's so much honor that's contained between her legs essentially. So her behavior or her lack of behavior or what she does or doesn't do, the whole family's shame or honor lies on her shoulders. And that is a huge, I mean, that's a huge thing to put on like, and, and you put on that and put that on like little girls, like, like girls from a very young age start to like pick that up. Yeah. Um, and so then what you're doing, you're doing for or against your entire family. And it's a tremendous amount of pressure. That's so hard. That's yeah. yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. It's it, it can it feels like something very similar to Irish, but not this generation. Maybe the generation before, because right, right, right. I know like my parents only got married because of me, and it was like a huge like deal. It was like, but I think now women still in Ireland deal with that kind of slut shaming, and they're try- they're being more like open about their sexuality, especially right now. But I do think there's still that kind of it's it's a uh, yeah slut shaming is a, is a is still a bit of a thing there thing, from what yeah. I hear. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a thing here too. It's just yeah. like, it's it's also coded in different ways here. You know, like I think they're like, 
I don't know. I think that it's still something that I feel like I encounter on a regular basis, like yeah. with, with like patients and students and things like that, where I'm like, yeah, no, this is still happening. It just, we're calling it by different names. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's so true. Jesus. Yeah, I get slut shamed all the time, but uh, you know, it's fine. I'm making like when they slut shame me on TikTok, uh, I get money for every view. So I'm like, that's okay. Like, <laughs> slut shame away. Me. Yeah, yeah. You're they're they're, it's fine. Yeah, they're paying me. <laughs> when you comment, it helps. But wait, so com- coming back to the shame, you said you said this thing about how like putting out the dark out loud. So so how would you how would you help people like or what would you suggest for them dealing with shame, like to kind of get it out of the back of their head, I guess. I think writing something, I mean, I'm a writer, so I'm always like, write it, but that's not how everybody does things. So, so I I think I'm a fan of like writing it out. Um, I think especially if it's something that's in connection with someone else, meaning something that someone did to you or something you did to someone else or some encounter you had relationally, I think putting it on paper really helps. I'm a big fan of writing letters you don't send to your point of like recording voice messages that you don't have people listen to. Like, I think like write the letter as if you're going to send it and then wait a week. And you know what? Then wait another week. And then wait another week. And if in like three yeah. weeks, it still feels like you want to send it, send it. You know, that's and I think that that's, yeah. I mean, I don't, I had to learn that because I have virtually no impulse control and it's something that I'm working on in my life. So I'm like someone that's like, I want, I need to do this. I need to do it now. I need to send this thing. I need to, and I've just like learned and use it a lot with like, like um, clients of mine. It's like, just write it down. Give it a minute, take a breath. And then, you know what, give it a little bit more, give it another week. Give it, and then if you still feel strongly about sending this thing out, you should absolutely send it. Because if you've sat on something for three weeks and still feel like it's important for it to be read or witnessed, great. But a lot of the times what happens is by the time those three weeks have passed, you, the witnessing that you needed to happen already happened because you did it to yourself. You've already heard yourself out. You've already given yourself space. Like, I think we don't think enough about the ways that we can be our own audience and that we can be our own witnessing, witnessers, um, witnesses. Yeah, <laughs> there's a word in there. Hey, um, I'm like dyslexic on all the levels, so I'm like, it sounds great. Sir, I love. Uh, I'm like yeah. audible and written. <laughs> so there's so there's something to be said for, I think that for writing it down. I'm also you know I mean I think getting a ther- obviously again biased like getting a therapist helps. Actually, for people who are a little bit wary about one-on-one therapy, I really recommend groups. I think like support groups and whether they are officially run by therapists or we were talking about 12 steps or there's a lot of like for people with substance abuse um, issues, there's something called the smart groups, S-M-A-R-T groups, like that are like not affiliated with with the 12 step program. There's just a ton of different spaces that are like peer led or therapist led. And those, I think, when you're sitting with one person, i.e. a therapist, you get one person who's listening to and, val- and hopefully validating you and bearing witness. But when you sit in a room full of people who've had similar experiences, there's something, I think, magical about that. Yeah. No, that's great because I know for me, I'm like, oof, I don't want to go to therapy and people say it all the time. Um, and like the listeners already know, like I don't speak to to my mother having in 13 years and I'm fine with that. But it's a lot of, you know, people would be like, maybe you should try therapy. Maybe have a conversation about it. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I went as a kid once and I had like a bad experience with it. But like, you know, so but then I'm like, as I get older and like wiser, I'm like, OK, well, just because you had one bad experience doesn't mean. But I think something like that group and I think people because Irish people, we don't we don't like to talk about our problems. We like to hide it in the back of our, our brain, lock it up, throw away a key. And it's very much our culture and therapy is not. And, and the way we treat mental health isn't that good. I think it's getting better, but. You know what? And let me let me mansplain your culture to you for a second. Please do. My understanding about the Irish culture, so please 
contradict me, is also an, a tradition that is strong within it is that of storytelling yes. and that of community and that of gathering. So yes. there, I mean, I think therapy, there's so many things that can be therapeutic. You know what I'm saying? So it's like maybe that there isn't a very strong, because I think this is actually another thing that's similar within Arab culture where like mental, there's still a ton of stigma around mental health. It's still not really something that people like a lot of, in a lot of places, like it still means something to get a therapist. Like it's a big deal yeah. to get a therapist. Um, and a lot of people won't do it. And yet it's also a culture that has a really strong oral tradition of storytelling and of sharing and of kinship and of gatherings. And, of, and, and I think that there's a lot of therapy things that happen and a lot of catharsis that happens yeah. if you're sitting around a pub telling stories or if you're sitting around a living room with like your aunts and your cousins and you're all talking about your lives like like there I think there is a way in which we can take these elements of our culture and alchemize them and see them to be somewhat therapeutic yeah no that's great actually because now even when you're saying that I'm like oh yeah because uh, you know when the Irish people will tell stories about stuff you know maybe that was if you said it in a different way, it would come across very sad, but they say it in a funny way. So I guess they are sharing it. Like I can, we do yeah. use humor maybe to, to yes. open up emotionally. Yeah. Or to like pad better. it out or something yeah. to like make it more digestible. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. So with the coping mechanisms, like what's the difference between like, obviously like healthy coping me mechanisms and what have you noticed that are like dysfunctional coping me mechanisms, I guess like addiction and stuff like that. I mean, addiction is anything like you can get addicted to anything. Yeah. I'm addicted to my fucking phone. Like you can Same. get addicted to a person. You can get addicted to a way of being. Honestly, I see people that are sober and I'm like, you're addicted to sobriety because you've like made it such a massive defining feature of your like personhood. And addiction is just any relationship to something that's taken to an extreme where you've become dependent on it, you know, where you need it to get through like minute through minute. Wow. Okay. I didn't even realize that. Yeah. And so I think, that, and, and I think oftentimes we think of it more with things that are going to hurt you. Obviously, if you're going to be addicted to eating salads, I'd rather you be addicted to that than be addicted to heroin. Right. So like there are certainly levels of which the, the, the things that you get dependent on or attached to are going to hurt you or are going to have like negative effects on you. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think like moderation is really the thing we're, we're all trying to strive for ideally with everything. Right. Yeah. So it's like, it's like how to have relationships, be, be dependent on people and things and entities and events and, and, you know, hobbies and careers and whatever, but also be able to like, like, it's like diversify, diversify yeah. your coping strategies, I think is the best piece of advice I could give is like not having one thing be the thing that carries all of it. And that includes like, not having your partner be the only thing that like props you up, not having your career be the only thing that you have that like brings you any sort of joy or meaning, not having one or two friends, like, like kind of really diversifying it. Um, I think healthy cope. I mean, I think a coping strategy that I would think of as adaptive is one where when you do it, it reminds you of yourself in like the best possible way. Like there are things that I do where I'm like, if I don't do them for a while, if I don't meditate for a few days, or if I don't write for a few days, or if, if there are certain people I don't talk to or connect to for a while, I don't feel like myself. I feel like I've lost some essential part of myself. And so when I, though there are certain things I've identified, and I think all of us have this, that if I do on a regular daily basis, I am reminded of who I am yes. and they bring me closer to myself. And then that's, that's when you're going to be operating from a place of abundance and operating from a place of like you're the best version of yourself. Um, so that's how I think of like a good coping strategy. No, I love that. That's so true. Cause I even find like for a lot of comedians specifically, and I'm sure this can relate to anybody who was, who had their work was their life 
the pandemic mm-hmm. was like fuck what do we do like we haven't the, like I I'm, I said to the guy I was seeing the other day like the show was cancelled and I was very dramatic I go I just feel like lost when my show was cancelled and he was like okay but I was like oh but it just reminded me in the pandemic and I think in the pandemic we had to kind of go what can we what's another outlet to give that exactly. kind of oh, and it's hard it's, it's hard for people to it's so hard it's so hard. I mean, I think also, like, I think the pandemic showed everyone what their, like, shaky spots were. You know what I mean? Like, it took, like, all of this, like, ro- stripped us of, like, routine and distractions. It stripped us of so many distractions. And then suddenly you were like, <gasps> if I don't have this, I kind of, like, spiral, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I think that, like, everyone had some version of that realization. Um and I think that that's what now in this sort of after, I mean, aftermath implies it's over, which it's not, but now as we're processing it, I think that's something that a lot of people are contending with these days. It's kind of like, okay, we're, we're entering into winter. Hopefully there's not a massive second wave, but there'll probably be somewhat of a second wave. What are, what are our lessons from the last eight months? Like, what are we going to bring in with us? It's like a bloody sci-fi movie. Sorry. So I was just watching the hundred where the earth just keeps exploding. And I'm like, God, this is like the pandemic, <laughs> but like. thousand percent. No, no, no. You can't. I mean, and, and like one, the one blessing of it, I mean, I actually hate when people use the word blessing, but the one, the one for me thing that has been useful is being like, you really can't go to, um, you can't see, zoom out too much yeah. after like post pandemic. You can't be like in a year, I'm going to do blank in a whatever. You kind of have to stay like day by day, week by week. And I find that for myself, like to be useful because I'm someone that can like think 10 years in advance and I'm like, well, you got to bring it back. You got to bring it back. You got to bring it back. So there is kind of like a mindfulness in that that's been helpful. Yeah. It puts you more in the moment to live in the day by day. I Whether you like it or not, this is yeah. your moment. Yeah. yeah. You just can't, you just literally cannot predict the next week. Like yeah. it's, yeah. Uh, I do like that as well because I feel like pre-pandemic I would have been a bit more of a worrier and then that just put it all in perspective and I feel like I've came out of it a more chill calm relaxed person kind of like you know shit happens you get on with it because even like you know I didn't do stand-up for a couple of months and it was like stand-up is the thing that brings me joy but it was also like okay I had to find other things that could you know you have to survive exactly you have to you've had to find a way to survive exactly yeah to diversify your coping diversify your coping i love this what i sort of sound like a douchebag to be honest <laughs> no it's great because i think you know anybody listening to this especially with the coping mechanisms is tr- it's good to hear that just about like because because we could go back into another into another well ireland's going into i think they'll they will correct me if i'm wrong but a level five lockdown so all right now all of them are stuck in their own county and so a lot of like you know my sister plays sport in a different county so that's been taken away from her and she's very sporty so yeah, so having to find different coping mechanism, yes. you know, for herself. Um, but yeah, so it's it's good it's a good thing for people to hear. Um, and even like I suppose as well, I guess relationships in this regard as well. Do you have any like advice for people kind of coping with relationships in the pandemic? Because a lot of people broke up afterwards because it was just like too. A lot much. of people broke up. <laughs> there are a lot of divorces that are like currently being processed. Um, I mean, I think it's been. I can speak even from my own experience. It's been hard. It's been really hard. I think there, like, especially the first few months, there was just a, in my, for in my marriage and in like the relationships of a lot of people that I saw around me, there was just a sudden like, oh, and it's just the two of you 24 yeah. seven. And again, you don't, there, there's nothing to kind of buffer. Like there's no, 
I, I think like I'm someone, like I was saying earlier, I'm someone that can be sort of codependent. Like I'm someone that can be kind of like, let's, I, I lean more towards like, let's spend more time together. Let's hang out. Let's do this. Let's do that. And, and I was like, this is a bit much. <laughs> this is a bit much. Uh, I'm starting to understand why amount of, a certain amount of space is important, why distance is a little bit important, why you kind of need like breathers. Um, you just, I think you have nowhere to, you just have nowhere to turn to. You have nowhere to like kind of catch your breath. Um, and so I think that the, what I have found to be useful is to carve out, like to sort of, and this is a privilege, right? We have a space where we have different rooms so we can like set up shop in different rooms and like do our work in different rooms. I know not everybody has that. Um, but I would say like as much as you can delineate space, if you're in a relationship and you're sort of quarantined together, like delineate, like this is your space, this is their space. Um, take breaks from each other. Like just because you live together doesn't mean you have to spend every night like watching the same stuff or having dinner together or whatever. Like you are allowed to like do your own things. Um, and I think being connected with friends together, like we, like one of the things we would do is like zoom together or like do calls together with friends, but then also like a ton of it was just us connecting with our friends separately. Yeah. And that was like a way of maintaining some sort of social life, even if, even this is like mid lockdown, so you can't leave the house, but like you're maintaining some sort of a social life, even if it's remotely, that doesn't necessarily involve the other person, which I think is, I really think is important. No, I I think that's great advice. I also think as well, when you were talking about that, it made me think of like, so let's say for, for certain people who are in a relationship and then the person says, look, I need a little space. Sometimes the other person can, because they're insecure, can get offended by that. So it's really important totally. to like totally. know that that's your own ego, I guess. Ex- know it's not your own ego and know that like you, it's also the other person. There's a, oh, there's a quote that I read the other day that I loved, which was something like, when people are when people set boundaries with you it's their way of trying to have like a relationship with you that like people set boundaries like people don't try to set boundaries with people they don't care about they'll just like feel like this isn't working or shut down or not communicate you know what i mean but if someone is saying like hey i think i need like tonight off that's actually their way of saying like it's a bit it's a lot right now and i i need this time off to recalibrate and get some space so that we can continue to like be engaged in these ways or be connected in these ways and i think if you think of it that way then it the boundary doesn't feel quite as personal yeah that's so great i love Isn't that lovely yeah no, it's I know. perfect I, I, I don't know who said it but it was lovely i like i don't i've plenty of times have to be like i'll question myself and be like mm, am i t- is this just my ego getting hurt okay let's take that totally. out and once i take that out i'm like oh actually okay i have to respect i that. do it all the, i mean it's still it's like something i've worked a lot on and it still like sneaks up on me where i'll just get really hurt like i really about like my feelings will get hurt and i'm like you don't want to hang out with me and yeah. i have to be like I'm like okay or let's recalibrate and like actually look at the situation as it is like how much of this exactly is what you're saying like how much of it is ego how much of it is like, you know, kind of a, a story about how things are supposed to be or how they're supposed to look like versus the fact that people have different needs and they have differing levels of need for closeness and connection and differing levels of need for like space. Yeah. And I think as well, like also when the, if the person is like, I guess I need space and if you can't be be alone, that's like a huge thing as well, because like exactly. only since I've been exactly. older, I'm really like I love my alone time. But there was like younger, unhealthy relationships where we were just together all the time and the thought of being alone with my own thoughts was like oh jesus christ yeah oh. yeah yeah totally totally yeah no i mean what it, i think it's like in those moments if someone does ask for a boundary or ask for space or something and they do it respectfully right we're not talking about people that are like abusive or assholes right but if someone get the fuck out of my house 
Yeah, like if someone is like kindly or respectfully yeah. saying like I need some space or I need a minute or I need whatever, I'd rather do my own thing today. Like I think that there is, and you and you have a strong reaction to it. I do think part of it is your work. Your work again, your side of the street is to be yeah. like, what's coming up for me? Yeah, like what? Yeah. Like is it that I don't like to like? Am I afraid of being alone? Am I afraid that this means some big thing about the relationship? Am I afraid? Blah blah blah. Like what is the thing that's underneath it? And that's kind of your. It's on you to figure that out. Yeah, yeah. Clean your street. I love this. <laughs> let me see I have a a listener I've always put out like listeners stuff if you don't mind if it's okay if I if I read it so they ask questions um and I screenshot it so um oh yeah I put in my favorites so one was okay uh since the podcast is sex related I have been with a few women who have had trouble asking for what they want in bed it works out in the end I often and when I catch up with them, they say that I was glad that I asked about their needs. I had one woman, though, in addition to trouble with asking for specific pleasure, would also prefer trying to cover her face with a pillow. Uh, but I loved her face. Is this trauma based or shame mixed with trauma? What else could I do to encourage them without possibly triggering something? Is this is the reader is the person that's sending it in male? Do we know the gender? Male. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, I don't. So that's actually it's funny. I would go back to the thing I was saying before when we were talking about trauma. Like I wouldn't necessarily go to pathologizing. It may be trauma based. It may not be. It may be shame based. It may not be. It may be that that's how that person gets off. Like it may literally be like, it's actually harder. I don't want you to look at my expression as I'm like having an orgasm. So it's easier for me to like not have something. Like, I don't know. So I think they're like, I would start with that. Like, I think start with the, like, just like, I don't know approach and kind of like the cure, like almost curiosity yeah. of like, okay, I don't know what the, what's actually happening for the other person. Um, and then ask, I, I don't think there's anything. I mean, this, I, I love that the person is talking about just asking people and being like forthright and straightforward. Like you can just totally, I don't know. I would maybe just ask them, be like, is this something that like, is this something that's coming from a place of comfort or is there something in the encounter that's making you feel uncomfortable and making you feel like you have to cover your face? Because I want to make sure that this like feels as good as possible for both of us, you know? Um, and then that way there doesn't have to be, I think a lot of times we put it on, on ourselves to do a lot of like sleuthing and investigative work when like you just make your life so much easier by just having the person just answer the question, you know, like, like asking the person. Oh, true. You know I love, I love that. I like, I think you're so right. Just ask straight away. I just ask. Yeah, because it's just, just a per- like, hey, is this like just is this just your thing? Because it's fine if it is. Like I think your face is beautiful. You want to cover your face while having sex? That's totally fine. Is there something? But it, it or is it a reflection of something that's happening in the dynamic? Because that I would like to like speak to if it is. You know, like I think I'd like to look at that a little bit more if it is. And then the person can be like, nope, this is just what I do. It's what I've always done in sex. Yeah. Or they can be like, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't feel like I look pretty right now or there's something I don't know whatever might come up for the person and then from there you can like you know you can have a conversation about it yeah I think that's great and I think look I know Irish women would sometimes they either need to be drunk first time having sex Mm -hmm. or just because they're like it's not like a super comfortable with your naked body culture mm. and it takes a mm. but it's just more like a oh get take a what because like I'd be very comfortable sexually like because I came to America but I know like the guy I'm seeing like went to go down on me the other night and it was so bright and I was like mm, and I got in my head for a second and he was like it's fine but I was just like oh you can just see my full vagina <laughs> it was like bright it was there's like an operating room I wouldn't I wouldn't be like that in sex because you're just so in the moment but I guess I've never had there was a something guy... about the intimacy and like the face 
the vagina yeah. proximity. I was yeah. just like, you, I don't know what my vagina looks like right now. Like, <laughs> so and I just got yeah, so you don't in my head. coming up for people. Pardon? I was saying, you don't know what's coming up for people. You're totally right. Like, you know, it yeah. might be that it's like the room was really bright yeah. and the person was like, I don't, this is too much to take in right now. It could be, I mean, who knows? Yeah, 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 yeah. And like in hindsight, I should have just turned off the light or there was also a TV on and I was just like two in my head. But, but it's, yeah, it's like, it's also just getting comfortable with someone. Um, it, yeah, it could be getting comfortable, totally. Yeah, I know. I love this. We have another question. It's, uh, oh, uh, the body keeps score of all that. I don't understand. Wait, I'm not sure if I missed the window. I have no concept of time anymore, but the body keeps score of all that. So are there any ways to work out trauma and tension through your body in a way that isn't just lighting candles and doing yoga? Does that make sense? Like, are there techniques for dealing with that low hum that can stick around in your body and mind after a traumatic event? That's really, I think that's really interesting because I, uh, you know, you would hear like of people having like pains after going through totally. something emotionally totally that's and i don't know if they're referencing the body keeps the score is a book um oh by uh no i don't remember it's like a it's like a big person in the field but it's essentially a book about trauma and a book about what trauma does to the body and the yeah. ways that i had a, a therapist once say to me the body got you in this and the body is going to get you out and I have always thought that was such a beautiful way of looking at it. And I do think that our, our bodies code everything that happens to us. Our bodies remember everything. And so if our body's coding some sort of trauma and that's where it's felt and that's where it lives and it lives in your backache or it lives in your, the, the, the sort of feeling of tightness in your chest or your, your gastrointestinal issues or whatever, or a lot of times actually with like, um, like sexual issues, like a lot of people have, you know, that's how it'll manifest for them. I definitely think body, like somatic related therapies do a tremendous amount of help there. And I know the person was like, I don't want to just like light candles and do stretches and I hear you. But I, I think that there are more, um, I was going to say more aggressive approaches, but aggressive isn't the right word. It's not the word I'm looking for. It's like there are more direct approaches that you can use. There's things like EMDR and there's things, I'm a big fan of exposure therapy for trauma it's, it can be really uncomfortable, but it's also a way of going directly into the thing that you're afraid of. Um, what is exposure? So exposure is essentially exposing yourself to a thing that creates a negative reaction in you and exposing yourself over and over and over and over again, but under the care of a licensed therapist. So like, let's say oh. you're afraid of like dogs or something. Don't by yourself go and expose yourself to dogs. I mean, like, like have like, like have like some, like it's like somebody who, um, will create kind of like a hierarchy of like exposure. Like, so first you start by imagining a dog and then you start by looking at pictures of a dog. And then you sort of go videos of a dog. Then you yeah. go to a place where like a dog is tied up and then you go to a place where a dog comes up to you. Like, and then you can do that with all sorts of traumatic things and memories. Um, and you can do imaginal exposure. And that happens particularly when people are really ruminating on something that happened that wouldn't be ethical to recreate, like an abuse situation. Like you're not going to go be like, go get abused again. Right? So it's like, like being able to imagine the exposed to something. Um, exposure is incredibly effective. It's been shown to be super effective with a lot of tra uh, traumatic responses. Yeah. And there is, what else was I going to say? I also, you know, there, I have, I don't have any experience in this on either end of it, but there's a lot of really interesting research and there's a great book called how to change your mind that is about using hallucinogens like hallucinogen assisted therapy for, um, I mean, I'm going to license it. I, I can't like tell anyone to do that. Obviously if something's legal, so don't, I'm not, I'm not telling anyone to do anything, 
but I'm saying that there's a lot of promising research coming out of a lot of different institutions. And obviously a lot of these methods have been used in different indigenous uh, communities like forever so, and, uh -huh. and have been used for these purposes, right? So there, there's, I think a lot of like um, evidence for it, both like anecdotally and community wise and more, more recently like in sort of scientific journals and whatever for using hallucinogen assisted therapy to work out certain traumas, particularly things that live in the body. I guess yeah because it lets you put down those barriers that you have like mentally put up yes. now I never want to do hallucinogenic because I'm afraid that what I have locked up is going to come firing it's out it's just going to come out yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're going to be like what the fuck Katie and I'm like, like nope didn't need that <laughs> yeah oh god and so what you said uh, I have two questions but the first one is you said another physical body workout thing and it wasn't about lighting candles what was that other thing you said you mentioned the other physical because you had said, oh, that person wants stretching. Or oh, were you just talking about actual just stretching and how it is actually very beneficial? No, I think I was saying like you don't have to. Oh, maybe EMDR. Oh, yeah. So what was that? Movement, yeah, yeah. So it's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Um, and I'm not at, this is not my field. So I have yeah. a few, I know several people that have done it and like really saying like sung its phrases. It is, it's kind of gotten like inconsistent results in research. But a lot of the things that have been found to be effective in it are connected to exposure. So essentially, it is somebody, someone, a therapist, a licensed person, guiding you into traumatic memories okay. while doing a lot of times like eye processing or like um, you'll hold two things in your hand and one will be buzzed. So you're focusing on something physical, something in the body or outside the body while you're talking about these and you're getting desensitized to the memories as you go over them over and over and over. Again. Oh my God. I love that. So yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, I think there's just a lot of research that shows like we get, we get like trauma is something happening over and over and over again. It's something that's done in the real world, like in yeah. terms of reality, the, the event or the experience is over, but in the mind, you are constantly in a state of being re-triggered and re-experiencing it ad in like ad nauseum. And so the way to break that cycle a lot of the times is to actually go towards the thing. Okay. And, and like be like expose yourself to the thing. And do you think as well, when it comes back to dating, if someone's dealing with a trauma and it maybe is a trauma related to like an ex or someone they previously dated that they haven't just gotten over, do you think it's okay to still date that person uh, as they work through Or do you think that's something they should work through on their own? I mean, I think it goes back to the, the side of the street thing. Like I think if oh, someone yeah. is, is, is facing their stuff and they're doing like, they're doing the work that they need to do and they're, you know, they're going to therapy or they're making sure that they have supports or they're figuring out how to cope with it. There's no reason to not be in a relationship with you. Like if you feel like someone is doing what they can to cope with something and they feel like they're ready to be in a relationship and you feel ready to be in a relationship with them. I don't think like, I think we'll, we'll be waiting a long time if we're all waiting for each other to like completely yeah. be done with our baggage and completely be done with our, and I hear you in terms of some things are just more raw than others. Yeah. But what, if, what if they're not necessarily ready, but they're like, but I want this. Is that okay? Because I always find with stand-up, you're never ready for the opportunities you have, but you kind of just go for it. And yeah, I, I kind of am, am of that, of that like camp too, of sort of like, if you want something like wanting something is its own kind of readiness. You know what I mean? Like wanting something and being committed to, to working towards it is its own kind of being ready for something. Um, and that doesn't mean that you may be like, I want it and I, I'm ready for a relationship or, like, I'm, or not ready. I want a relationship and I'm going to go towards this relationship that it turns out I'm not ready for it. And I didn't work out. That might happen. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I don't think, I think if it's, if there's a desire there and an intention 
to do whatever work you need to do. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And then, so back to you, when you were even talking about like those different forms, when you were talking about the body, this just made me think about it, but how do people like you or like uh, anybody who like, is the word vicarious where they work with people who have dealt with trauma, like social care mm-hmm. workers, or how do you then deal like with like vicarious trauma to your yeah. secondary traumatization yeah. yeah I mean I think it's something that definitely when I was when I was starting out was something that affected me a lot um like I would dream about clients I would just kind of go around like thinking about things that I would hear in session a lot I think one of the things that you learn is sort of like a healthy detachment that comes from like a loving place like there, there's there's so many ways to detach from something and a lot of them can be sort of distant and shut down and cold but I really believe that there's a way to detach from situations where you're not detached. Detachment doesn't mean you don't care and it doesn't mean you're not invested in or, or find it important. It means that you're taking a step back so that you can see things clearly. And I think like that, like that approach has been one that I've been able to bring into therapy more and more is kind of being like, okay, I'm going to like take a step back when the work day is done, the work day is done. Like we're not doing notes at night. We're not doing notes on weekends. We're not like, we're just kind of trying to have some sort of boundaries. And again, boundaries, like like good boundaries, I think are really useful for everyone. Um, But I also, I mean, I also, if like if I have a long day or like a stressful few hours or a few sessions or whatever, like I'll that night take a bath or I'll eat something that I'm excited. Like I'll have a nice dinner. Like um, there, there's a little bit of like a kind of a treat mentality where I'm like, okay, like if Tuesdays are a tough day or Wednesdays are a tough day, you're like, okay, I'm going to try to do something nice at the end of the day. And um, yeah, I think there's, I mean, I think it's important, especially, and I also have a little bit more right now. I kind of have my schedule is one that I sort of have picked. Like I kind of decide what it's going to look like. I decide a lot of times what patients I'm going to work with. So it's more for people who work really chaotic shifts in like hospitals or like agencies that are underfunded. Um, I think those, it becomes like really critical to make sure that you're taking care of yourself and you're setting boundaries and kind of a delineation between work and home and work and home and yeah. not letting them spill into each other. Yeah. So you're basically, yeah, just like minding yourself. Exactly. Which, taking care of yourself. Yeah. Which is great, which is great advice for everybody. Cause even people, you know, I like Irish people, there's a bit of a culture that you, you work all the time. You're the lover work, like it's kind of like that right. guilt, you know, like, know my, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like my father is a farmer, a policeman and he grows his own vegetables and he's always just having to do something. He can't just sit down and relax. Yes. Um, yes. Well, it's a capitalist thing, right? It's like a productivity, like our value is in our production and, and it's, it takes a lot to start to like unlearn or move away from that way of thinking. Um, this is great. Before I let you go, can you talk about your book? Because you wrote a great book. Yeah, I read yeah. I read a bit about it online. I was like, this I'm going to read this. This is great. I'm excited. The, so I have a few collections of poetry, but the novel um, is a multi-generational story of a Palestinian family that kind of follows this family's trajectory through multiple displacements. And it's like a story of diaspora. And then I have another novel coming out in a few months. And what's that novel called again? It's called Salt? Salt Houses. Salt Houses. That's great. Yeah. And what's your book of poetry called? The I have a few. The latest one is called the Twenty Ninth Year. Wow, this is so great! I love yeah. this. Yeah, I think I think uh, it's. I guess well. Okay, uh, do you mind if I ask you one last question? Not at all. So you deal with a lot of immigrants, right? Mm-hmm. And and then do you think like you would have you know for immigrants coming over, uh, let's say, and they're dealing with any trauma from from back home? Would you kind of always have different uh, coping mechanisms for people from different cultures? Yeah, I mean, I think that. I think yes, just because 
our cultures impact what's important to us and they impact what brings us joy and what makes us feel like ourselves. like that idea of like what reminds you of yourself so your culture is going to decide and at least have some sort of influence on what reminds you of yourself so if someone comes over from a particular country and they've only been here for a year and they're kind of coping with trauma and we're trying to learn or figure out what coping strategies work for them it makes sense that their coping strategies might look different than like a straight white guy that's american that's never left the states because they're just going to have been exposed to different things you know they're going to they're going to have different traditions and different um maybe like collective values and things that they can like rely on or turn to that the other person may not be able to yeah that's great okay because i always think like the way as an irish immigrant how like in relationships here as well like you know if i date an american they have different expectations than i would as an irish person or yeah so or deal with mental health differently like i find guys over here on first dates will very open up about their trauma and not knowing like that you know like my childhood and then like eventually i'll tell them along a few months and they're like jesus you should have told me that on the first date and I'm not not comfortable so it's like it's such these like different culture shocks that come on you're bringing in your whole anytime two people are in a room together they're bringing in their whole world they're bringing in everyone they've ever interacted with and all the cities they've lived in and all the things they've learned and all the experiences they've had in and like of course it's going to impact I mean yeah the, the the speed at which you're comfortable sharing or what you share or how you share it or what you turn to for support it's going to be it's going to be impacted by all of that this is great okay yeah. Okay, what's your Instagram handle again? Um, my Instagram handle is. How do I find that out? Oh, I have it here. So, oh yeah, uh, we follow each other. Yeah. Yeah. So it's your name, your first name, then dot, then n, and then dot your last name. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'll, I'll put it in the bio as well. Great, and okay. I'll put your links to your anything in the in that the. Would be great. This is so great. I'm so happy. Thank this you. So nice. This was wonderful. I'm okay, so excited I'll, to see you in a few hours. I know. I'll see you at seven. Yeah. Okay, great. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you guys so much for listening to Oh my God. I feel like I want to go talk to a clinical psychologist every week now after after this episode. I'm like, okay, I definitely need therapy. And I felt better after after um listening to her. She's just so insightful and such great tips as well. So uh, please go follow her on everything. And if you want to go read her stuff, I've uh, everything is in the description of this episode. Uh, also for next week's episode, I have Dara Quiltley um, on Cara Savone. She's an American podcast host over here. She does the Gone Girls podcast. So I'll have both of them on. So if there's anything you want advice from them, that'd probably be a bit more of a, like a bit more of a crack episode, you know. Um, But if there's anything you need advice, please email in, uh, DM me on Instagram. And if there's any topics you want me to bring up with the two of them, uh, let me know. And um, yeah, and please keep sharing, rating, reviewing. And I hope you guys are all okay. I love you all and have a lovely week.